This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. We have a wonderful guest this week, Suriman Maswadeh, who is the political correspondent for Israeli uh, public broadcaster Khan. He's a Palestinian working for an Israeli television. There's a lot to talk about, lots of ground to cover, and also Israel's continuing coalition woes, and of course, a story about espionage and death on an Italian lake. This is Unholy. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. We are connected by long-distance Zoom technology right now, you and me, you need. But last week, very fleetingly, we were face-to-face across the Shabbat dinner table. Indeed, and the universe survived. Look at that. Um, it was a spontaneous sort of off-the-cuff decision uh, by me to come uh, to London for a very brief uh, Shavuot uh, holiday with my dad, which was kind of cool, I must say. And uh, we shared a Shabbat dinner with the Friedland family. You know, that moment where it's a moment full of charm, I think, that we, you and I, we come from different worlds and different countries and, you know, different surroundings, different point of views. We disagree on a lot. We agree on a lot. And just that moment when you suddenly kind of, I- I'm going to sound a little sappy, but just when you kind of realize this is our basic thing that, that connects us, right? The Shabbat dinner and the Kiddush and all of that. And obviously, even if you don't go through that uh, in your own home, the Shabbat dinner as a as a tradition is, uh, is such a lovely moment. And you say, okay, oh, now I get this. Now I get this idea why we're having this conversation every week. And, uh, and it was lovely. Yeah. No, sappy is completely welcome. I um, I know exactly what you mean, and that was that that moment where there is a sort of base anchor of continuity and common ground, no matter all the differences we always talk about. Uh, your dad a big hit in this household, um, so we <laughs> should say so. that. It was fabulous. And also very weird to be able to speak to somebody and not have to press buttons and put earphones <laughs> in. And uh, there was no option just to press a little red button to... Uh, to shut me end. up, you mean. That's uh, what you mean. Like, <laughs> why doesn't it shut up? But I'm pressing end meeting. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a complete joy. But you had then had to turn tail and head right back to the homeland. Um because the news never sleeps, even when you are in what did what didn't Israelis always refer to like the flesh pots of London and New York and things as the kind of counterpoint to the Zionist land of Israel? Isn't that always the word <laughs> flesh pots? I feel I, I maybe in the like eighties. I don't think we use that anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's just straight back. You don't have a uh, you know the five minutes to readjust your brain back to Israeli news cycle and frequency. So that was uh, straight back to what is happening here. So let's talk about that a little bit before we bring up, bring in our, our special guest. Um, look, you know, we are focusing right now, I would look two weeks into the future, June 15th, we're talking on a Thursday, that's exactly in two weeks. That is the deadline to form the Judicial Selection Committee in the Knesset. Why am I saying this to you? Because this obviously has been the most contentious topic in the last couple of weeks and last couple of months. I remind you that the coalition, what it wanted to do under Yariv Levine, the uh, justice minister, under his, what he dictated was to change the makeup of the committee in a way that the coalition will have a majority in appointing all judges. 
That, of course, uh, did not come to pass. And what they are talking about now, essentially, is the same makeup that has been part of the Israeli Knesset for years. This is amazing when you think about it, uh, Jonathan. We talked about this judicial revolution since the beginning of January, when Yariv Levine, obviously supported by Benjamin Netanyahu, presented his plan not much of is left of it uh, now, and and the more time passes, the more it's it's clear that Netanyahu, again, if it is completely up to him, would want to shelf this. But this will be our first indication, June fifteenth, that that is indeed the case. And always a deadline, always gives a kind of clarity, concentrates mm-hmm. the minds. Uh, gives it a focus. As you say, we have been debating from the start whether this is something that goes away, gets diluted, and the moment of truth is at hand. The polling suggests still that the majority of the public are not on board for this plan. They don't like it. That is always going to, again, concentrate the mind because the people who are in the government and coalition know that if for any reason they have to face the public, they do not have their support. That is going to be a factor. And those protests, I mean, they are, to my mind, still incredibly. I think last week was week 23 of the protests. I mean, it's getting to the halfway through the year mark. Well, you tell me, the pressure from the streets still as strong as it was or not? Well, I mean, that's, that's I think, the salient question. Because obviously we saw last week there, there was a dwindling down of numbers. There was some talk about 80,000, 90,000 in Tel Aviv. Numbers were larger than that, for sure. But what we see is the protests still pretty headstrong. Netanyahu being very concerned. He doesn't want to reignite the protests to the level that we saw them at. So he's Again, he needs to to play this game very, very carefully. And and what we see more and more, and I think it's important, Netanyahu's coalition partners, sometimes in the Likud, putting across bills for the Knesset, suggesting all kinds of bills, and then having to pull them back. The NGO bill, as an example, what uh, the Likud wanted to set a uh, bring forth a bill to strip the Israeli Bar Association of its licensing power. That also connects to the Judicial Appointee Committee, but it means that everything they try to bring forth. There's this huge public outcry and they need to pull it back. You know, it, it kind of raises the question, what is this coalition? What do they manage to do? And you, you mentioned the polls. The polls are really not good for this coalition. If it has now 64 seats in the Knesset out of 120, the polls show 53 for this coalition. That is a diminishing of power. And again, Netanyahu is being very careful not to reignite the protests. You keep having these threats from the opposition saying, if you do anything too dramatic, we are leaving the conversation and the negotiations at the president's residence. And Netanyahu, I remind you, told everyone, the Americans and the financial sector and everyone that he wants to reach a consensus. So if they leave the negotiations, that's very bad news for him. So it's all a tightrope walking here. The NGO bill you mentioned, really important, I think, outside Israel, because this was the one that said, if NGOs, non-government organizations in Israel receive money from foreign governments, Mm -hmm. then it will be taxed at a punitive level. I think 65% was the number Mm -hmm. uh, they had in mind. Now, let's think who this was targeting. It wasn't saying any foreign money, right? Because you, all the groups on the right, settlements and everything, get a ton of money from outside the country, from American Jewish organizations, Christian organizations even. That would hit B.B. Netanyahu's own people, their organizations. No, it was saying if you get money from foreign governments, and the people who get money from foreign governments tend to be on the left. It will be those groups who are 
monitoring human rights abuses, who are campaigning for Arab-Jewish coexistence and equality. They are the ones who get money from European governments, from, you know, famously Scandinavians put a lot of money into this. And essentially, they would be saying to those foundations in Oslo or Paris or London or San Francisco, you know, do you really want to give $1,000 knowing that 650 of those dollars will go into the coffers of the Netanyahu-led government? I mean, it would be big decisions for those foundations. So this was really an attack on on not just the left, but left that enjoys support in the wider world and in the diaspora. And that NGO bill being withdrawn, a lot of relief from mm-hmm. campaigners and others, but also a sign exactly as you say, that this is a government that in a way is running out of road. It can't govern. It can't actually implement its own program, partly because it has hanging over it those poll numbers that say, move in this direction. If you trigger elections, you're going to lose and lose power. Yes. The the one thing and the one critical decision of policy is, of course, the budget and allocating a lot of billions of shekels to the ultra-Orthodox community. By the way, that is also showing in the polls. Many Israelis resent that. That the, the government managed to do because it, it's, it's, it's the government's prerogative and it's a, you know, a legitimate policy decision. But everything else on the table is sidelined and is they're reluctantly sidelining it because of the uh, public sentiment and the pressure from the outside world. Meanwhile, we should bring people up to date with a jaw-dropper of a story that really could have been, I I can't even imagine where this thought comes into my mind, but could have been written (laughs) by a writer of thrillers and turning on conspiracies and involving players and protagonists in the Middle East. And that is a story that came last weekend of a freak accident on Lake Maggiore in Italy. You're the Italian speaker. Lago Maggiore. See? Okay, that was okay. For an Englishman, you're okay. All right. Um, Where a boat, a pleasure boat, capsized, several people on board died. Later, it emerged that uh, on board were a group, large group, of both Italian intelligence officers and officers of Israel's Mossad spy agency, along with the Russian wife of the Italian captain of the ship. It all happened, as I say, Sunday night on the lake that we just mentioned, that we won't risk pronouncing again in the northern Italian Alps. Mystery surrounds exactly what happened. I think most people accept that the capsizing of the boat is as it seems, that it was caused by stormy weather and perhaps some question that the captain hadn't heeded warnings in advance of a coming storm, but four people drowned, and a lot of attention on one of them. The Israeli on board is, uh, and the man who drowned has been named as a Mossad man, Erez Shimoni. Now, the que- the point here is that is not his real name. It's standard practice that when Mossad personnel, particularly if they've been involved in operations, uh, will deploy an assumed name. On Wednesday in Ashkelon, a big funeral, absolutely protected, ringed by Mossad personnel. Many of the people attending were wearing COVID-style face masks as if to hide their identity. But there in attendance was the head of the Mossad, David Barnea. And there have been, there's been a statement from the Prime Minister's office thanking the dead man, so-called Erez Shimoni, for his service. It's all very hazy. And, Mm. um, 
you know, people are going to wonder, was this just a social occasion? Mm, unlikely, you know, this number of people um, gathering together, I think, you know, in the double figures of Italian officers and Israeli ones, what were they up to? What were they meeting for? What was the purpose? Yes, even if this was a sort of pleasure trip, was was there some other reason that brought them together in mm-hmm. Italy? There is some history of cooperation between the two agencies but now it's going to be uh, interest in this will not uh, go away, I suspect, because death on the lake, Mossad men, Italian uh, intelligence officers are drowning. There's many, many questions here to answer. Right. And as you said, it's really shrouded in mystery in the way that the funeral was uh, organized, the fact that the Israelis actually dispatched a plane to bring the Mossad people home. And there were reports about the fact that uh, everyone involved in this kind of hurriedly picked up their belongings from the hotel after the accident. A lot of of mystery. You know, there's so many rumors and there's a rumor about the the Iranians trying to target this boat. Look, sometimes, again, from what I've uh, managed to, to sort of gather. First of all, as you say, sometimes an accident is just an accident, and this looks like that is what it was, but the question is, of course, what were they doing there in the first place? Uh, even if this was a social gathering after a certain mission, so what was the mission? Uh, there are reports in the Correra della Sera, the Italian uh, newspaper, saying that they were... Uh, discussing intelligence gathering and and trying to uh, uh, organize surveillance after uh, Russian oligarchs that were supplying drones to Iran. We don't really know. But again, these are these stories that sort of trigger the imagination about uh, what is uh, going on. That is the little information that we have about this story, which is obviously going to turn into the next Sam Bourne novel. Uh, it might. I'll, I'll might, have a word might. with Mr. Bourne. I mean, just a couple of, <laughs> uh, just and one particularly arrested, arresting detail. A news agency report it was 13 Israelis and eight Italians on board to celebrate a birthday. I mentioned this man who's been named the dead man, uh, dead Mossad man, as Erez Shimoni. But at the funeral, he was referred to only by the initial M. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is already, you know, people who lap up espionage stories will know that M is a storied code name in this field. So look, obviously the people are dead. There are we, we families mourning, but there's going to be huge intrigue about all of that. Nevertheless, for all that, our conversation uh, this week is with someone really close up and well-placed to observe what is happening in Israel, but from a very different angle. Suleiman Maswadeh is the political correspondent for Israel's public broadcaster, Khan, Channel 11. He grew up in the Muslim quarter in the old city of Jerusalem, then lived in the Shu'afat refugee camp. He covered Jerusalem for the channel, now is their political correspondent. He is 27 years old and he learned Hebrew in one year. He's a Palestinian from East Jerusalem working for an Israeli public broadcaster. That means we have a lot to talk about. Suleiman, thank you so much for talking to us today. I'm very happy to be here. And, and we're very happy to, to have you. And we should set, before we even starting, we should set the stage, especially to listeners outside Israel and say, you really are the, a star on Israeli television. There's no opening up. <laughs> there's no opening up your network without seeing you. You anchor once a week. You're the political correspondent, very volatile political time. And, and you're definitely, I mean, you know, we should say this to, to your credit, the credit of your talent and the, the credit of your employers. You're definitely not the minority reporting on minority issues. You do everything. You do it uh, with great talent. And I, I think I, we have to kind of, there's so much to talk about, but I kind of want to open up with talking about that 
uh, junction in your life, being the Palestinian correspondent for an Israeli public broadcaster? Well, actually, I never thought in my childhood that I would be a journalist. I mean, I always wanted to be a um, football player for the U.S. listeners at soccer. And um, I actually have only one memory of watching Israeli TV when I was a child. I think it was the second intifada when uh, when buses were just blowing up. And I remember that all of my um, family members really like sat in one small room and watched TV because we wanted to know what's going on outside. And we watched, there was a, a, an attack in, in Jaffa Street, which is like five minute walk from my house. We were like listening to Israeli TV, not understanding a word. And um, this is the only memory of mine watching Israeli TV. Like, that's it. I've never watched Israeli Hebrew TV in my childhood. I started watching that when I was, uh, when I started um, studying Hebrew. And that's it. Like, um, I, yes, I, I love news. Like, my late grandfather was like waking me up at like 6.30 a.m. to get him the newspaper and then um, listen to radio news in the morning. But that's it. We, we, we should just contextualize a little bit about uh, exactly where in this landscape you sit, and that is particularly from East Jerusalem, because there are many people who won't understand fully the quite unique position that East Jerusalem has, where it is sort of neither one thing nor the other, but a kind of third category. So just as a bit of context, why don't you just uh, give us a, an explainer of that? And then, of course, I want to know it, it, about how on earth you learned Hebrew in one year. But <laughs> give us the explainer on East Jerusalem first. The unique position of, of Arabs who was born in Jerusalem is that we are citizenless. We're not in, uh, Israelis, nor Palestinians or Jordanians. I, I don't have an Israeli passport. You know, I like my Jewish neighbor that I remember in the old city was like, we shared, I don't want to say we shared the window, but I, we used to share the same um, building at one point. Um, they have Israeli citizenship. I don't. I have a Jordanian passport since 1967, but I'm not a Jordanian citizen. Um, I have an Israeli um, ID, just like any other here in the country. I can't vote for Israeli election. I can vote for the city hall. And every time I want to uh, fly from Israel, I should get a visa to any country. So, I mean, just the... the and I pay taxes, which is very important to say here. That, that's amazing. You pay taxes for a government, but you have no way of uh, influencing what that government looks like because you can't vote. I mean, this is really... I think a lot of Israelis don't even understand or don't even know this, that essentially uh, Palestinians in East Jerusalem are stateless, as Jonathan says. You have no citizenship. You do have a Jordanian yeah. passport just to travel, but you actually have no citizenship. Uh, what is called in uh, in the U.S. taxation without representation? <laughs> yeah, that caused so a bit of trouble taxes, actually back in the day. Oh, it did, it did. Yeah. They threw off a king, if <laughs> I here. remember correctly. <laughs> Not in Israel. So, I mean, well, I'm just picking up just something you've written about because what you've said there explains that it it is uh, in this in between state that you find yourself, and there's this 
quote from you where you say, among Arabs, I've become a traitor heretic Zionist who supports the occupation army. In other words, that's how they see you. In the eyes of the Jews, I will always be the Arab. I will never be part of Israeli society. But even during my most confused days, in the evenings as I return to the Shuafat refugee camp where I live, the police officers at the checkpoint always and immediately remind me which side I'm on. Just sort of unpack that for us a bit. There's a lot going on in those few words. Well, I don't know where to start. So being an Arab in, uh, in, in Israeli TV news is, can be very tough and, and tricky because news here are very um, patriotic and um, sometimes I'm not. Every journalist here is expected to to have side, and um, I don't. I just I don't like to take sides, especially, and sometimes I just can't. So when you report on on things like you know terror attack on both sides, you're just like you know trying to examine you in every word you say. And um, sometimes when you get back home, it's like I remember chatting with friends like you, you you said this word and didn't say that word and um, it's actually working for both sides but at the end of the day it's like because we live here as i said before like everyone is is trying to um, understand from you whether you say you got to say you're an israeli or a palestinian and you have to identify yourself and i don't know how to do it like I find it so hard to do. Uh, you, you say you find it hard to do. You know, it's interesting. I, I look at you, you know, if I think of, I don't know, women in the media, right? The, the revolution came or the mm-hmm. change came not when women were writing about women's issues. It came when they did everything. And you do everything. As I said, you anchor, you, you do the political portfolio. It's the most natural thing in the world. You see, I think there's this moment, we have to uh, relate this to our listeners. You were talking to the anchor woman in the, in the studio, the very talented Maya Rachlin, and she asked you about a, a television show for, for teens in Israel. You said, I never watched it. She said, why? You were this brainy type who never watched television. You said, no, because I watched only Arab television when I was growing up. And it's this normal, this normal conversation. But reality outside, Suleiman, is, is completely crazy. I mean, I don't need to tell you this, right? On the Jewish side, you have Ben Gvir, on the Arab side from, from East Jerusalem, Definitely, you had a long list of, of terror attacks coming out from the beginning of the year. And even before that, is the true story of Israel, you and, and your important position on Israeli television or the craziness ensuing around? You know what? I actually, well, I, I will talk about that, but from a different point of view. I think that um, the most important word in my life in the past years is, is language. Mm-hmm. Now I speak Arabic, Hebrew, and English. But let's say, like, take you, you need, for example, you don't speak Arabic. I'm actually going to tell you a, a funny story, and it's actually, it's also a very sad one. I have a very close friend from Inuz who told me, and he knows Arabic. He told me that one time he was in the hospital in Jerusalem, and he sat in the smoking area, started smoking. There were two Arabs next to him, and they started talking about Someone uh, from their family uh, are in the hospital, and they use the word Amalia. Amalia in, in Arabic and in Hebrew have two, they have different uh, meanings. Like, uh, it can be a terrorist attack, and it can be uh, surgery. 
So they were talking about the surgery for like three minutes. And he thought that they were talking about a terror attack. And he almost ca called the police and got him arrested. Now, let's take this example, not for all Israel, but only for Jerusalem. Nearly 400,000 people living there. Half of them doesn't speak the language of the other half. Now, take this example for Israel. I grew up in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, not knowing nearly anything about Israel, not knowing the language, not knowing the culture, the history. I didn't know what is, um, uh, is the, the Supreme Court, the Knesset, Yad Vashem. Like, take this for example, uh, and I'm not saying this because, you know, I, I want to get any Jewish sympathy. It's just the first time I actually heard something true about the Holocaust, it was when I was 21. And I don't come from Gaza or from Kuwait. I come from, like, the center of this country. And in high school, we learned about the World War for two years, and they never mentioned Holocaust. In, in any page in our books. And the first time I heard about it, it was like when um, uh, our Hebrew teacher like showed us um, this video of uh, Nazi officers stuffing in Jewish in, in an autobus, in a bus, and then like turning the gas pipe inside the bus. And we all thought it was never happened. And that's when she realized that we don't know a word, like a single idea about the Holocaust. Now take this example for everything else, like the Israeli culture, the Jewish culture, the Jewish history, the history of my neighbors, the history of my girlfriend right now. It's, we have no idea. And this is something that it's huge in this country. And um, I, I think I'm trying to fix it. And partly you're trying to fix it, I guess, by just personal example, because people will see what you've done. And in a way from both sides and think, well, that, that's got to be the way forward. And just as complete a last piece of the autobiography, if you would, which is how you then embarked on this journey. You've explained to us that in your own upbringing, you were listening and watching Arab media. You weren't or Arabic media particularly. You weren't aware of the society, the history of the culture that was right next door, a few hundred meters away from your front door. But you're working, I think it's a few years ago as a waiter and this sort of realization comes to you and I think you've said in an interview that you thought you know that you were surrounded by other waiters other people with two degrees from Birzeit University and who were still working waiting tables and you thought that scared you and you were going to start over because there was no other way to survive in the Jewish state. Just tell us about that feeling and then what you then did, and particularly this amazing thing of the kind of crash course in Hebrew and Jewish culture and so on. So what happened is I, I finished high school and I was supposed to get um, a scholarship to study a BA in Turkey, in Istanbul. And um, at the end of the day, I had to go through an interview I think I'm saying this for the first time, actually, in an interview, that the one who interviewed me was a chef, and I got into that mosque, and he said, you're not getting the scholarship to Turkey. And I was like, why? And he said, you were playing in a football team that also there are girls in that team, and we saw you, like, talking to them and having coffee with them and just dressing improperly. So um, 
you're not a Muslim enough to get this scholarship. And it's just, it, it devastated me. I realized later that the one who got the scholarship is the, uh, the accountant's son of the school. So <laughs> okay. that was, that was a little funny. Actually, I'm, I'm not, uh, today I'm very, I'm, I'm very happy that I didn't get that scholarship because, uh, my life just changed for good. What happened is that I finished high school. I, I went to Brizet University. It's um, a great university, actually, in the northern of uh, Ramallah. I uh, studied accounting because I wanted to make money. It was a three-hour a three drive from, uh, from Jerusalem to, to Brizet, going through two checkpoints. And uh, I didn't like it. I just didn't like it because I, I saw that um, the future for someone like me is to finish a four-year BA, and if you are lucky, you can get you can get a job in the Bank of Palestine and get a salary of seven hundred dollars a month. And in the meantime, I worked as a waiter in uh, uh, David Citadel, and uh, it's a hotel in uh, the center of Jerusalem. As a waiter, I actually made that salary in 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 one week, and. As you see, I'm a, I'm a big talker, so I, I talked to everyone that I worked with, and I realized that there were like two areas in, in David Sutter. There was a lobby, and there was the breakfast area. And uh, all the Arab waiters who didn't speak Hebrew were um, worked in the um, breakfast area, and the ones who spoke Hebrew, most of them were, were Jews, worked in the lobby. And I realized that, well, in lobby, you have like this huge tips that you get from uh, um, very rich people who sit there just to, you know, drink soda and, and cappuccino and pay in like, I don't know, $50, $50. When I started talking to these people, they like, they had the same life story as I did. They were like born in East Jerusalem, um, studied in, in, in Palestinian universities or or universities in the Arab world, and they get back to Jerusalem, and then they couldn't get applied to any job because they didn't speak Hebrew. And I, I just got very afraid. Like I, it, this thing freaked me out. And after a, a lot of thinking, I just decided to drop out of university and just you know get a work or something, a full time job. But a friend of mine who worked with me, like, told me, you can, I, I know a place where you can study Hebrew, um, and you can speak it in nine, 10 months. I just laughed at his face. <laughs> and, um, he told me, just try it. It's a college. Yeah. And you can get a scholarship. You can study in Israeli university, fi finish your BA in three years and go on with your life. And actually, I said yes for fun. Like I said, Okay, let's try it. I have nothing to lose. And that's when I got uh, um, an application for Hadassah College. They taught us um, Hebrew. And it's not, as I said, it's not only the language. Like, my whole world just changed. You can imagine that my first um, talk with a Jew was not with a policeman, but with someone who were in, in, uh, waiting for our coffee. The idea that you can just talk to someone about anything it's just a life-changing. And in a way, the very fact that it's so rare that we're talking about it like this is indicative of a, of a wider phenomenon. But we should ask you anyway about the day job and what you do there. 
I would love to. <laughs> I mean, well, well, one thing just that was in the news right now that caused got a lot of attention around the world was this incident in Jerusalem. I know this is the beat you used to cover. Now you're doing national wider politics, but in Jerusalem, yeah, this scene of uh, young ultra orthodox sort of militant Jewish men harassing and even spitting at a group of Christians in Jerusalem. I mean, two things about that. One, can you give us the background? What is going on there? Because this is not just a one-off. But also, you know, the Christian link with America and Israel. A big part of the pro-Israel sentiment in the United States is driven by evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. Do you think the Im these images being seen on American TV could shake evangelical American support for Israel? So two things there. First time I heard about that when I was, um, it was like um, six months ago when I was, um, um, Jerusalem correspondent for Khan and, um, I got a phone call from someone who, who said, who talked to me in Arabic and said, um, I, I have to talk to you. I have to meet you. I'm a Christian living in the old city and I think someone is going to die soon. And if I talk to you, you can, we can save lives. It was very dramatic. So we sit for a coffee. She showed me a lot of CCTV of ultra-Orthodox Jews, like spitting on, on Christians. She showed me a video of someone like peeing at the entrance of one of the uh, churches. And she told me the police are doing nothing about it. And um, actually, we Christians, when we defend ourselves, we get arrested. So we would like to do uh, um, a TV piece about it and and air it on TV. You know, I, I I agreed, and that's where I started to to do that. And actually, the videos that I got were just you know shocking. I thought that after we aired that piece, the police would change something, but nothing changed. I feel that this is a story of how people are being treated here differently. Like if you are. A Muslim or, or a Christian and I can a Jew, you can be arrested like very quickly and, and gone to uh, a trial. But if it's the opposite, it can take a lot of time. And the story you just talked about now that a foreign minister of Israel not sending uh, anyone to a Christian event, it's just another example of that. Um, I, I don't think that anything can change because it's under control, but this is something that we are seeing that becoming more and more popular mm -hmm. in the recent years, actually, to attack Christians. And the Christians that I talked with, they told me that one of the reasons, one of the major reasons for that is that there are, in, in, in today's Israeli government, people that used to represent these people and, and take part and actually friends with these people. And now they are in the government. Mm -hmm being a ministers in this uh, new government and they feel like they can do this stuff. So so they're giving him more of a green light now that they're in, in power. Uh, this connects to my next question, which is about the flag march, um, which obviously you've seen over the years as a child in the old city, but also as the person who reported on this. How did this march sort of in your uh, perspective change over the years, and especially now that there's this right-wing government in Israel, you know, how does it look like from the Palestinian perspective and also from the journalistic perspective? You know, Anita, I, I can, you know, I'm, I'm a 27-year-old journalist. I don't like to 
bringing my ideas on, on Israeli TV. I just, you know, like to do the news and go home. But mm-hmm. this exact thing is just driving me crazy. And I sometimes I just, you know, talk about it more than news because, as I said, like I experienced it as a Palestinian and also as a um, journalist. I call it the March of Hate. And I call it March of Hate because I experienced it since I was a child. Like there was um, this one day a year that we used to close all the uh, doors in the buildings, all the windows. And I remember my mother telling us that we, we, we can't go to school. We can't go uh, see friends, uh, play football because the city is in lockdown. And I never understood why. So one day I remember that I... Um, actually got just you know escaped escaped home and um walked to Damascus gate and it was like the Jerusalem turned into um a zone of war like a lot of policemen uh, a lot of people um you know with guns and um i felt that i'm i'm living in a different city Later on, when I learned Hebrew, I understood a little bit what I what I felt when I was a child. I'm going to tell you what I see in this march as a journalist and also as um, a previous um, um, Jerusalemite. I see ten thousands of people marching uh, inside the old city of Jerusalem in the uh, Muslim quarter, which is okay, but a lot of them, and it's not. Uh, you know, a tiny minority of uh, tens of people. No, that's a lot. A lot of people spits on elderly, peeing on 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 buildings, and attacking people, and chanting together, um, "Death to Arabs! May your city uh, burn in hell!" And uh, this goes on for hours and hours. Now, I want both of you to you know just imagine. The opposite, you know, tens of thousands of Arabs or Palestinians marching in, um, in the center of, of Tel Aviv or, or Nebrak or, or Ashkelon, marching death to Jews. May your city burn in hell. May you burn in hell attacking you. Now, not only the police will arrest you, there will be actually uh, <laughs> uh, dead people there. Um, and none of the Israeli officers, none of them, like, doing a thing. And at the first year, it, uh, I was very furious, but I didn't say a word on TV or, or, or write a, um, a word on Twitter. But the second time that I covered it, I just, I told people at work, I'm taking only half an hour, I'm leaving the, the camera, and I'm just going there, not as a journalist, an Israeli journalist, but as a Palestinian, as an Arab. And I took my phone and started, like, you know, um, recording people. And the hate that I recorded on my phone for five minutes has just made me feel that I'm going to lose my life soon. And I just felt, I felt furious again. Like, I wanted to be there, but I also didn't want to be there. Well, I get that. And when we, when Yoni and I talked about it uh, on the podcast... I said how much I disliked it, but you've added another whole layer to that, um, hearing it from your perspective. You've explained why East Jerusalemites cannot really do anything about this or anything like it, because they have no votes for 
the government that would, uh, you know, authorize such a march or not authorize it. But the Palestinian citizens of Israel outside Jerusalem do have votes mm-hmm. and can take part in choosing who leads and directs the country. And yet, traditionally, we know they vote in much fewer numbers, many fewer numbers than Jewish Israelis. And so I want to ask you about that, about what it will take for Israeli Arabs, Arab Israelis, Palestinian citizens of Israel, however, and you'll tell me what the preferred term is, uh, for them to use their political muscle. Because if they voted proportionate to their numbers, they could have 25 seats in the Knesset. You know, that would be a big block. And in a way, rather, they... Well, put, put the Knesset aside. If we, like, take, okay. if we um, talk firstly about Jerusalem, like half of Jerusalem residents are Arabs. If they vote, the major of them, the majority of them, vote for the city hall, the next governor of Israel, of, of Jerusalem, can be an Arab. And it can change a lot. Like today, we don't have any uh, any representative in the city hall that, that, that Arab. If we talk about the, the Arab Israeli citizens of, of uh, the Arab Israeli residents, like let's let's take um, an example of what happened in the in the last government. Like they voted, they become a part of the political power, and they changed things. Because I covered it, I saw what it's like being a member of the of the coalition, not not of the government, but coalition. Like you can legislate, you can change things in the Knesset. I don't know what should be changed here to make more and more Arabs vote, but I can see that the opposite is happening now. Let's take, for example, what's happening now in the streets of Israel. Like you hear in the news every two days that an Arab got murdered. 86 Arabs murdered since the beginning of this year. That is insane. And nothing is changing right now. And pe- so people are now losing faith, not only on government, but in this idea that is called a democratic state. So if you can't protect your own people, so why just, you know, be uh, someone who, who believes in, in a democratic country? So I don't think that more and more people will vote. I think it's going to be the opposite, unless the Arab politicians can change people's minds. I don't think that's going to happen soon. I do want to ask something about, because we're talking about a lot, and, and I'm glad we are, about the perspective of of seeing this as a Palestinian, as a reporter, and as a, as a Palestinian kid growing up in East Jerusalem, when the Jewish part of Jerusalem look at East Jerusalem, they see the fact that, you know, in every poll, the population, the residents of East Jerusalem say they would vote for Hamas 33%, maybe even more. They see the fact that since the beginning of the year, there are three terror attacks that killed the murdered 11 uh, Israelis that came from uh, East Jerusalem. Right. Can you talk about the, if you see a rise in support of Hamas? I mean, I know that the analysis is usually that we say this is under Israeli sovereignty. So the paradox is that people can actually more freely support Hamas and not the Palestinian Authority in East Jerusalem. Could you talk a little bit about that support? And do you see it increasing in East Jerusalem or actually decreasing? It is, it is increasing. It is mm-hmm. increasing, especially since the last war in 2021. And I, I, and I can also tell why, because in East Jerusalem, there's this 
a huge vacuum of leadership. And I, I, I want to get you back to, our, to the start of our conversation. When you don't have really uh, any uh, identity or, or citizenship, or you can't say who you are, you're looking for someone that can support you no matter what. And the organization that you can always hear them talking about Jerusalem and, and um, say that they try to help the, the Arab people of Jerusalem is Hamas. And when they launch a war on Israel and uh, on 2021 and, and calling it this war is for the people of Jerusalem, people can feel that. And think of um, um, an Arab resident of, of Jerusalem who's living in Jerusalem, uh, who's paying taxes, who's working like any other. He doesn't get the basic services from City Hall, they don't have enough money to send their uh, children to school. And on the other side, he sees his Jewish neighbor living their life. This person is, at the end of the day, wants support, wants people to tell him, you are right, we can help you, we can make your life look better. Now, Hamas doesn't make the, the, the lives of, of, of Palestinians in Jerusalem better. But sometimes they give this basic support, like um, schools that are not very expensive or give you a service of sending your kid to soccer team. So at the end of the day, when someone who lives in Jerusalem, and I have seen that the Israeli government doesn't take care of them. The Palestinian government is just, they don't exist in Jerusalem. And, but he sees that there is one organization that tries to help him. Even only on TV, like saying, you're right. It can, it, it, it makes him feel something different. And to your question, Unity, yes, I see that more and more people in Jerusalem maybe sympathize with Hamas and, um, no one is doing anything about it. Because no one else is making that case as, as the way you've described it. Again, I'm on the same point about participation. I think the reason is that they don't have political power. And it, it, it starts and, and ends with political power. Like if, if Arabs in Jerusalem can vote for Knesset, they also, yeah, you know, should feel that they want to vote for Knesset. Everything can change because once you have this political power where you can get money from government to actually uh, to invest back in Jerusalem, everything can change. But it's not... It's not happening in Jerusalem. Yeah. I mean, in a way, the personal example that you're setting is the way to get things is to participate. That's what, you know, you, you do, are doing through your own daily life. You're participating, yes. That's what I try to yeah. do. S sorry for having No, no, you're... you're, you're that's, that's exactly what, I, what I'm trying to do. Like, I'm, I'm... The major reason for me being a journalist in Israeli TV and Hebrew TV and not being an Arab who covers... Arabs, which I hate, it's that I, hate I that, want hate that the job, Israel, yeah, <laughs> uh, a, a Jew, an Israeli Jew, looking at me at uh, an evening tea, an evening news, and say, um, "This man didn't speak Hebrew last until he was twenty-one. He lives in a, in, a, in a city where he paid taxes and never get any um, service from Israel, and yet he managed to learn Hebrew." 
certain uh, uh, in evening news and tell me what's happening in the prime minister office of Israel. Like, this changes something for me. Yeah, and not just for you. So the, my point was going to be that participation is the sort of model you're advocating just through your daily life. Some the, A story we've talked about all year on this podcast is the judicial overhaul, the judicial reform, judicial coup, depending where you stand on it. Again, two things. One, you go to those demonstrations. There are some, but not many, Arab-Palestinian participants in the crowds. You know, to a lot of Jewish liberals in Israel, that's surprising because they think the Supreme Court did this great job defending Arab rights. So how come you're not there defending the Supreme Court? Your thoughts on that and also your thoughts on whether or not this, as a political analyst, whether you think this judicial reform package has gone and is never coming back, or is it just temporarily on hold, on pause? Well, you said that Israel liberals um, are surprised when, when Arabs don't take part in the, uh, in the demonstrations. I say that I'm surprised when they do take part in these uh, demonstrations because, you know, I, I don't think that the, um, the Supreme Court of Israel is, has helped or, or defended the uh, Arabs' rights as they should do, like, let's take, the, for example, the Supreme Court of Israel now, the justices that are there now. There are, uh, if I'm correct, 15 justices. Only one is an Arab. And if you go down in the, in the um, justice system, you don't see a lot of Arab justices. And when you look at the cases in, in Supreme Court, Arab citizen can look at the Supreme Court and say, this Supreme Court is um, helping Israel keep the occupation of the West Bank. And um, there's a great linkage between Arab Israelis and, and the Palestinians in the, in, in the West Bank. And about the, the second half, uh, is do you think it's gone? Like, do you think that when you look at the political system and all of the different coalition woes that Netanyahu government has, do you think that this judicial overhaul will be shelved and, and will never come back? Um, I don't think so. I think that at the end of the day, something will change because a lot of people in Israel voted for that. And they're expecting any change. I don't think there's, it's going to be the same thing that, um, um, uh, of Levine said will be. It's just going to be like um, a change, maybe a minor change, and that's it. So that was me stealing Jonathan's question, but now I want to give you another question of mine, which is the Saudi Arabia story and how much you think that there really is this sort of chance for a normalization. Is there a serious chance for a breakthrough between Israel and, and, and Saudi Arabia? And, and does generally the Arab world kind of look at this government and say, you know what, we can work with them or let's kind of sit and wait and see what kind of, you know, how extreme they really are? I think they want to sit and wait because, you know, if Israel, if Israel and Saudi can have relations, it's just like the, the major news of this century. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I want to tell you something funny. Like last month, I, I told my mom that I'm going to meet a very uh, senior official in Israel. That's taken part in the uh, um, Israeli-Saudi um, talks, and she told me, "Just ask him if I can fly next year to Mecca." And uh, I asked him and said, "I, I hope so." But 
we're working on that. But the relations between Arabs and Israel and, and uh, the Arab citizens of Israel and Israel and Saudi is very, it's fascinating actually, because uh, a lot of Muslim Arabs here in Israel like travel to Saudi, to Saudi Arabia, to Mecca. And actually me, myself, I, I traveled there when I was a, when I was a kid by bus from Jerusalem to Mecca. That's a long it drive. Took me like, <laughs> it took me like two, it, it was like a, a two day trip. Wow. It's, it was like two and a half days or something like that. It's like, uh, what is it? Coast to coast here in the United States of America? <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I visited Saudi Arabia three times and every time is my bus. It was like, it was very hard. And nowadays you can just, you know, take a bus to, to Amman, to Jordan and, and fly to Saudi Arabia. Now, a lot of Arabs in, in, in Israel see that what, um, the Abraham Accords did for the relations in the area. And I think they want more. And if you can tell them that you can fly from Israel to Saudi Arabia, to Mecca, um, this is a life-changing matter. Mm-hmm. And it's like a, a very, very, very huge major news and a major change. And uh, even for my mom, someone who's not not interested in, in the news in Israel, not interested in what's happened in the Knesset or in the Supreme Court, she just wants to get from um, Jerusalem to Mecca and four hours. And for her, this thing can be life-changing. Mm-hmm. Well, just think if there is normalization with Saudi Arabia, you have, you know, the advantage on any Israeli other reporter <laughs> because you've actually been there. So you have things to say about that. I was cutting into your question, Jonathan. No, I mean, there's there's much we could talk about, but you've got you've just one thing with the, in that region, in the Gulf, and there was this story broken by a friend of the podcast, Barak Ravid, about an American shuttle mission to Oman, perhaps using Oman as a kind of third-party broker with talks with Iran about the nuclear program. It appears, according to Barak Ravid's reporting, that Israel has been consulted about that. But the Biden administration clearly very keen to get a nuclear uh, understanding or arrangement of some kind with Iran using Oman as a sort of go-between. You know, this kind of diplomacy, people had equally worried that Saudi Arabia, there was a kind of warming of relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Lots going on, lots of moving parts, people wondering what is going on behind the scenes. And maybe all these things, including what we just talked about with Saudi Arabia, are somehow connected. I mean, what's your read of that diplomatic activity? Well, people recently are, you know, they say that they don't understand why um, Saudi Arabia is um, connecting with Iran. Now, actually, I, I do understand Saudi Arabia because they don't want to be left alone in the Middle East. And they are neighbors of Iran. Iran attacked them before, and they want an assurance from um, the United States. It's not doesn't matter whether a uh, Biden administration or another or any other administration that they can feel safe that Iran can just destroy Saudi Arabia the next day. And if the United States can protect the Saudi Arabia or, or Israel can protect Saudi Arabia, so they think that maybe they should get back to any peace deal with, with Iran and actually understand them. 
to be honest, um, I, I don't know like if we can have any, you know, if something can change soon about the Israeli-Saudi relations. But I can tell you that if people here in the area in Israel, if the Muslims and Arabs, if they didn't like this idea before, mm-hmm. like having peace with uh, Israel, having peace with the Arab world before having peace with Palestine, it changed after the Abraham Accords. Mm-hmm. And now it's, it's, it's easier to have relations and maybe uh, um, peace with Saudi Arabia than before, but it's still tough because, you know, as you have said, peace with Saudi Arabia, the damage breached. So we talk about your, your identity and, and what you're doing. And I'm always sort of curious where you get more threats from? Is it, does it, uh, I don't know, maybe threats is a strong word, but hate mail, okay, as, 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 as a concept, more from the Jewish side or more from the Palestinian side saying, you know, you're a collaborator, etc. What do you hear more? This is me trying to end on an optimistic uh, note. Uh, <laughs> very optimistic. <laughs> uh, uh, I think that I get more hate mails and, and, and threats from the Palestinians because at the end of the day, I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. And they have these like expectations, huge expectations for me mm-hmm. to, you know, being uh, the guardian uh, of their idea. And um, don't be mistaken, like um, at the end of the day, I was attacked physically by right-wing um, Jewish supporters, not Palestinians. So mm-hmm. <laughs> there are difference between hate mails and what's happening uh, on the field. Mm-hmm. But I respond that I'm a journalist who wants to do his job. And that's it. Like um, I decided to have a different path for my life. See, I, I live in Tel Aviv. I have a very lovely, beautiful Jewish girlfriend that we were together for almost two years. So um, it's just um, a different life I'm, I'm picking for myself. And, and uh, I'm guessing, well, first of all, I mean, having a Jewish girlfriend, I bet the reaction to that in the Palestinian Jerusalem community has not been straightforward. And you can maybe tell yeah, us. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Maybe that's another <laughs> conversation. But I was just going to ask you with the, the criticism. He, he was being the journalist, Suleiman. You can't, you can't, um, <laughs> you can't, can't be angry of us for of being journalists. We've but I was just wondering out. if the criticism when it comes from the Palestinian community hurts your feelings, distresses you more than when you get criticism from Jewish Israelis. It hurts me more because I'm not the only one who's getting the criticism, but also my family. Um, like, um, um, yeah, I get criticism. I get hate mails, uh, I hate WhatsApps messages. But at the end of the day, it's also that my father comes back from work and he sees a neighbor and he tells him that we saw your son saying that and doing this and not being, um, critical with his interview with Itamar Bengvir. Yeah. I'm using certain words and not using in other words. And uh, it's, it's only, not only my father, but my late grandfather and then my sisters. I have, um, I have six little sisters. So uh, everyone is, is sometimes hearing some thing about me, whether on social media or on school or university. So uh, I think this is a different in culture where in Israel, uh, for, uh, for you uh, as a Jew, like let's talk, let's take Yonit Levy for example. If if someone from Levy's family did something bad, like they and, and no one will come to Yonit and say, 
do you know that you know Moshe Levy from uh, from the north? He said that and done that. But if I do something wrong, like anyone can come from my uh, my roots are from Hebrew, so anyone can come to my uh, I don't know any uh, Maswadi member of my family and say. Um, so we went from Jerusalem said that, yeah, why do you think of it? Maybe we should talk to him. Wow. Yeah. I, I can't not think of this moment. I have to share this with you. I'm not sure if I ever told you this, Jonathan, but we were sitting in this open air studio, I don't know, 10 years ago in a certain flare up with Gaza. And there's this crowd, you know, coming forward and yelling at us that we are from Al Jazeera and we should uh, go uh, work for the television of, of, of Hezbollah. We, we know this, right? That the, some parts of sure. the, of the population think uh, the mainstream media isn't patriotic enough. And they yelled at me. And at the end of the broadcast, they came up to me and asked if they could take my picture, a picture with me. And to me, it's always so indicative of how at the end of the day, celebrity trumps all, even in the most diverse country. And I wonder if you have that a little bit. I mean, obviously being the star in Israeli television, et cetera, do you get that as well from all the people who are angry and the family members and the extended family and everyone from around? But are they a little bit, you know, also sort of, oh, okay, he's a star on TV. Is that, does that work at all in that regard? My family, yes. we're talking about my family. family or the other side well, of it, like do yeah, anyone? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Like, like uh, a lot of them are, are very proud. Like, uh, let's talk about my, my, my mother again. Like she doesn't understand a single word of Hebrew, but if I don't call her for two or three days, she turns on um, um, ch <laughs> our channel, Khan, and just watch TV from... 3 p.m. until 11.30, just just watch me and then text me like, oh, you're alive. Why didn't you text me? So Muslim mothers and Jewish mothers so, are very alike, I, I sense. Very alike. So um, I, I also think that they're very, very proud. Like I, I have a lot of memories of my, of my grandfather just, you know, watching TV and, and, and calling me uh, after that and said, I'm... I love you. You should quit your job, but you had a great um, interview right now. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's very uh, it's very different from a person to another. But yeah. some of them are proud. Some of them are still proud and want me to change to you know quit my job, and others just you know don't like this thing at all. It turns out family is family. Uh, Suleiman Maswade, thanks so much for joining us on Unholy. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Suleiman. Thank you for having me. So fascinating to hear from Suleiman Maswada there. I, th I, th I mean, you know, he's obviously a star already in Israeli broadcasting. He's going to go on to huge things. He's able to move, I think, really seamlessly between analysing the country as a political analyst, but bringing in that personal biography, which does mean he just has a very, you know, singular angle on the country. And it makes me think, actually, how... You know, I think he was sending a message to his own community that they more of them need to participate. They more of them, in a way, need to do what he's doing, which is to get actually in there and have an influence. And I wonder if, and I sort of hope um, there are young East Jerusalemites, young Palestinian citizens of Israel watching him and thinking, okay, this can be done. He can be sort of a role model and that it's better to be involved in the mix 
rather than this position which as he referred to institution you know historically has been the position which is to boycott elections municipal and national and other forms of participation so i really hope he's not a one off you know much as he was a, such a terrific guest for you know and somebody to talk to you really want him to st- you know to become much less unusual Right. I mean, he's definitely a groundbreaker. I mean, there should say there are other Arab analysts and correspondents on our network as well. But the more the participation is, I think the more important it will become. And as you say, it's a symbol of something and it's they they lead the way. I, you know, I was struck by when he told that story about his mother texting him after not talking for a couple of days. I'm glad to see you're alive because I see television. Let's just say that sounded very familiar to me. But also his analysis about you know the this the chances for Saudi normalization there are things happening there and you called it moving parts I think we'll we'll focus on that in one of our future episodes there's definitely something with Israel and, and Saudi Arabia that that is moving forward but yeah I mean I'm, I'm really glad that he came on I think it was a, a, a really a fascinating conversation to see things from his perspective so we have awards to present in our usual fashion. In in an act slightly of chutzpah on my part, I am going to see if I can get away with this and to grab both awards and give them to one group of people. You may have seen the statement on the risks of artificial intelligence published by a whole lot of experts and public figures with this one almost single sentence saying mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. Just 20 odd words there is basically the statement. On one level, Mensch of the week collectively for them for alerting, you know, the human race to this huge danger. I wrote about it the other day in my own column. It is really a arresting and clear and present danger. Lots of possibilities for good as well. I will absolutely concede that. But you know, there is also a non-trivial risk of catastrophe with this thing. So on the one hand, you want to say, great, mensch to all of you for doing this. On the other hand, bit of a chutzpah, because the people who are signing this include the people who have given the world this kind of AI and who've been running with this unregulated without much heed of the possible dangers, galloping through, gobbling up the world's store of human knowledge and feeding it to these machines to learn on. The likes of Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, Demis Hassabis, CEO of Google DeepMind, a whole lot of CEOs and others who have brought us to this point. So, So I think it's a kind of simultaneous chutzpah and mensch. Mensch for alerting us to the danger, chutzpah for their part in bringing us to this point. Again, a teasing future episodes, we will discuss this in depth. I think that it's, it is important to say that at least this time, I and mean, when you had social media erupting and people were very excited about posting themselves in bathing suits on Instagram, no one ever said, okay, this might lead to populism. This might lead to, you know, very dangerous places. Here, at least, at least there is a discussion about this as it happens. I think that is important, but I, I applaud your attempt at trying to do mention chutzpah at the same time. However, I just wanted to add a little bit of a mensch this week, if I may. Yes, a mention. Um, you must. I, 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 I did want to because, you know, the whole world is focusing on succession ending. 
my succession confession is that I'm on season two. It's taking me a while to watch. I'm a busy person, so no spoilers, please. But no I actually, since since we are a Jewish podcast, I will have to mention the arguably most Jewish program on American television, which is, of course, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which ended last week as well. And I think is a very lovely, first of all, very Jewish program, but also very lovely feminist story about a, a housewife from the upper West Side, I think, turned into stand-up comedian, kind of fighting her way in the world, dominated by men. This is all in the 1960s. Great program, a lot of feminism in it as well, talking, you know, in the last episode about how people will say that ambition, she says, ambition is maybe not a attractive quality for women. Well, you know what's less attractive than that, sitting at home and waiting for something to happen. I mean, it's a beautiful uh, story. Amy, Amy Sherman Palladino, obviously the creator who is Jewish, main character Rachel Brosnahan, who's the actress, not Jewish. But this is a great program. Amy Sherman Palladino also created Gilmore Girls. I assume you weren't a fan. I was. No, you, you assume wrong. I watched the first season, really liked it, really liked it, and then got, you know, into the second season. And then it is true, I did slightly feel, okay, I've got the idea now, I've sort of got the joke, it didn't hold me. But if you advise me to go back to it, then uh, I, I will. And also I that lovely the loquaciousness sort of cameo. is charming. I think it's, you should try. It is. And Tony Shalhoub as the father an Arab-American playing a Jewish father. I mean, mm -hmm. Interesting. Also, of course, the whole Jew-face argument that we talked about on this show mm -hmm. about a non-Jewish woman like Rachel Brosnan uh, playing Mrs. Maisel, but doing it very charmingly. So do we think it's Mrs. Maisel or Mrs. Maisel? It's Maisel. See, this is why you should watch. Yeah, so you'll get I that right, back to it. at least. Yeah, I need to go back to it. Um, if we're doing mentions, by the way, a little honorary mention, I think we might give to... Woody Allen, obviously a controversial figure. Lots of people would uh, balk at him being branded as a mensch. So, it, but just a mention for a, a little good deed he performed this week, which is he saved his friend from choking by performing the Heimlich maneuver and apparently doing it with with great sort of energy and strength. His friend, Andrew Stein, a former Manhattan Borough president, was choking at the Caravaggio restaurant on the Upper East Side last Tuesday. Stein said, I'm embarrassed to say it, but would he actually save my life? But here's the next bit. He goes, I normally order fish, but this time I went for the pork. <laughs> now, I leave it to listeners to judge whether this was a sign from the universe that uh, he began to choke on the pork, but it required Woody Allen to perform the Heimlich Maneuver. If you've seen early Woody Allen films from the sort of 70s, don't tell me this isn't a scene from a Woody Allen movie where the guy is having the pork for the first time in his life, a Jewish guy, and his body rebels against it and starts <laughs> choking, and Woody has to cross the table and perform the Heimlich Maneuver. I think that's a scene from Play It Again, Sam. Um, and if love it the, I love the be. subtext in this podcast. I love the subconscious <laughs> yeah. messaging you were just sending to all of our listening. Not so sudden, not not such a subject. Not so subtle. Uh, okay, final mention of the podcast. We can't say goodbye to our listeners without mentioning the best tweet ever. I think it's the best compliment you ever received, uh, I'm guessing, but it's just so perfect. Um, uh, the Escape Artist, Jonathan's book, which you, if our listeners haven't read yet, please do, but it came out in paperback in the UK last week. And Richard Dawkins, who, the evolutionary biologist, of course, wrote this. I must read it out loud, the tweet that he penned. He said, finally struggled to end of Anna Karenina, 
free to move on to a genuinely great book, The Escape Artist, brilliantly written and narrated by Jonathan Friedland. I mean, Anna Karenina, he says, not a very good book, but Jonathan Friedland's book is fantastic. I love this. And of course, I love Anna Karenina, so I'm going to ignore the first part. But just, I mean, this is this is the best couple. I need your it is quite. It is. I mean, it is a, a, an extravagant compliment, isn't it? To be saying <laughs> it's a great compliment, <laughs> not if you're Tolstoy. Only if you're Jonathan yeah. Friedland. Forget Tolstoy. <laughs> Here's a book I recommend. I mean, the only problem with it was it got a lot of social media engagement. That one, but all from people then defending Tolstoy and getting into a whole argument about the merits of Anna Karenina rather than talking about moi. And so, um, you know, but thank you, Professor Dawkins. Quite, quite the compliment. We should urge you, if you have enjoyed Unholy, to shout about it to your friends. Uh, You can rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, but also on our Facebook page at Unholy Podcast and the same on Instagram. We appreciate it and it does all help. We do. And let's say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Atik and Yair Bashan. We will meet on Zoom next week, Jonathan. I know. (laughs) See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.